Well, please, people of God, turn your Bibles this morning to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. If you're using our Emmanuel Pew Bibles, Jonah 3 can be found on page 921. 921 in the Emmanuel Bibles. If you know the story of Jonah well, then you know that Jonah was the runaway prophet. When, when God called Jonah to go one way, Jonah went the other way. And perhaps we can all relate to that. Oftentimes God calls us to do one thing, but in our sin we do the other thing. And so as Jonah was on the run from God, fleeing to Tarshish in chapter 1, God hurled a great wind upon the sea so that the sailors were afraid and eventually threw Jonah overboard. And then God appointed a great fish to swallow him up. But in chapter 2, Jonah did the only thing he could do. Jonah did the only thing we can do when we find ourselves under the Lord's chastening hand. Jonah turned to the Lord in prayer. He cried out to God in the midst of his distress and, and God heard him. And God answered him. And so the great fish spit Jonah out on the shore again. And that's where we pick up the story this morning at Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose. And went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, that everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands." Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to us this morning. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, thus far in the story of Jonah, the Lord has done some rather marvelous and spectacular things. As I just noted, the Lord has, has hurled a great wind upon the sea. The Lord has caused a great fish to, to swallow Jonah alive. and He's caused the same fish to, to spit Jonah out on the shore again. But what God does here in Jonah chapter 3 is even more spectacular. It's even greater than everything he has done thus far. Because here in Jonah 3, God 
causes his word to to penetrate, to, to break through the proud hearts and minds of the great city of Nineveh. And he brings them to repentance. Four times in the story of Jonah, Nineveh is referred to as the great city. In Jonah 1 verse 2 we read, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Here in verse 2 of chapter 3 we read something similar. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. In verse 3 the Spirit says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. As we hear this afternoon, Jonah will hear in chapter 4 verse 11, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left hand from their right. Yes, Nineveh was a great city, an exceedingly great city. Nineveh, you could say, was, was on top of the world. They didn't need God, and they certainly didn't need the word of God. Or so they thought. The city of Nineveh, you see, was a proud city. Their people were were proud. They were puffed up in heart. They were on top of the world and they knew it. And so we learn in chapter 1 verse 2 that they were worthy of destruction. They were worthy of damnation. But here in Jonah chapter 3 we learn that the greatest city in all the world is no match. The greatest city in all the world is no match for the power of God's word and the wonder of his grace. And here at the very start of the chapter, we learn that the same was true for Jonah as well. Jonah also was no match. He was no match for the power of God's word. He was no match for the power of his grace. Because although Jonah had indeed tried his best to run away from God and and to keep the word of God all to himself... The Lord did not let his prophet off the hook. But so determined was the Lord to to bring his word to Nineveh that that he rescued the runaway prophet, not only from the depths of the sea, but also from his disobedience. That's what was the point of that great fish. That great fish was used by God to to bring Jonah to his senses, to make him see the, the error in his ways. And God was gracious to rescue Jonah, not just from the depths of the sea, but from his own disobedience. And now the Lord has recommissioned Jonah to carry out his prophetic task once again. And that's where our passage begins with Jonah's recommissioning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so from the very start of our passage, we're shown yet again how patient, how patient the Lord has been with Jonah. For the Lord has not only been gracious to rescue Jonah, but the Lord has also been gracious to recommission Jonah for gospel service. In congregation, isn't this what God often does with his people? Isn't this what Jesus did with Peter? After Peter had denied him not once but three times, the Lord Jesus not only forgave Peter, but he also restored him. And he recommissioned him, saying, feed my sheep. 
And this is really what God does for us every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day, we, we come to God at the start of a, of a new week, acknowledging the fact that, that we have sinned, that we have, that we have done those things that God said we should not do, and that we have left undone the things that God has said we should do. But every Lord's Day, what does God do? He comes to us in, in the assurance of pardon. He, he comes to us again and again in the, in the preaching of the gospel to, to recommission us, to, to recommit our way unto him. At the close of the worship service, what does God do? He, he sends us on our way into another week of his service with, with the assurance of his blessing. He, he recommissions us to his service. Even when we have run away from God, God has not run away from us. But as the canons of Dort teach us in Article 6 of the Fifth Head of Doctrine, God, who is rich in mercy, according to his unchangeable purpose of election, does not take his Holy Spirit from his own completely, even when they fall grievously. That was true for Jonah. And that's true for you and me as well, isn't it? As we confess in Article 7 of the same head of doctrine, by his word and spirit, God certainly and effectively renews us to repentance so that through faith we come again to adore his mercies and from then on more eagerly to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And this people of God is who our God is. He is the God of of second chances. He is the God of fresh starts and and new beginnings. He doesn't just rescue us, but he also recommissions us. And he causes us to be serviceable for the furtherance of his kingdom. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And boys and girls, what does Jonah do this time? This time, Jonah listens to the voice of the Lord. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Isn't that amazing that before Jonah was was running away from God, before Jonah was running away from the word of God, and now Jonah is obedient to God, walking according to the word of God. Only the grace of God could make such a thing happen. And so Jonah journeys into the city and he proclaims the message that had been entrusted to him. And what a startling message it must have been. Yet 40 days and and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was the theme of his sermon. To be sure, Jonah must have said other things about about who God is and about repentance. But if you were to, to boil Jonah's message down to one sentence, it was this. Yet 40 days. And Nineveh shall be overthrown. Can you imagine if I began a sermon that way? Yet 40 days and, and Canada shall be overthrown. What a, what a startling message. What an almost unbelievable message that would be. But here's Jonah, an unknown foreigner, pronouncing a word of doom. Proclaiming that in 40 days time, Nineveh is going to be overthrown or, or turned upside down. In other words, Jonah is saying, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. God 
has not turned a blind eye. Nineveh is going to have to give an answer for the deeds they have done. And so perhaps we wonder, well, well, wait a minute. If God's desire is, is to save Nineveh, then where's the message of grace in Jonah's proclamation? You see, the message that was entrusted to the prophets was always a, a twofold message. It was always a message of grace and repentance. But, but Jonah's sermon appears only to be a word of judgment. In 40 days' time, God is going to overthrow the city of Nineveh. No apparent promise, just a threat. No gracious, warm summons, it would appear. Just a, a sharp warning, it would seem. Where's the grace? Where's the grace? The grace in Jonah's message is perhaps easy to miss at first glance. But when you really think about it, Jonah's message is full of grace, isn't it? Do you see where the grace in Jonah's sermon is, boys and girls? You listen for the grace, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Where's the grace? The grace of the message is found in the first three words. Yet 40 days. Yet 40 days. Congregation, that's grace. Because when God tells Jonah to say, yet 40 days... What God is saying to Nineveh is this, there's still time. There's still time. There's still time to turn it all around before I turn your world upside down. You've got 40 days to turn unto me. You've got 40 days to to humble yourselves before me in repentance and faith. God, you see, would have been perfectly just to have simply wiped out the city without so much as one word of warning. But instead, he says, yet 40 days. Yet 40 days. Congregation, God speaks to us in the same way. You see, Jonah's message, we have to understand, was not just for the world, not just for for a wicked, unbelieving Nineveh, but that Jonah's message is contained in the Old Testament Bible means that, that Jonah's message was also for Israel. Jonah's message was also for wayward Israel who was going away from God, living for themselves, living for the idols of the world. And if Jonah's message was, be, was to be heard by Israel, then his message is to be heard by you and me as well, by the New Testament Israel. Of course, I don't know the day or the hour of Christ's return. I don't know if it's going to be 40 days or 40 years or 40 decades. But what I do know is this. It's a lot sooner than the world thinks. It's a lot sooner than the world thinks. What does Jesus say in Revelation 22 verse 12? He says, behold, I am coming soon. I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. This is why the Apostle Paul urges his readers so strongly in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, Working together with him, then we appeal to you 
not to receive the grace of God in vain. In the favorable time I have listened to you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, says Paul, now is the favorable time. Behold, says Paul, today is the day of salvation. Beloved, today is the day of salvation. But implied in the Apostle Paul's words is that tomorrow might not be. It's true that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of, of grace and mercy. Today is the day of, of divine patience and, and forbearance. But tomorrow might be a day of judgment. Tomorrow might be a day of, of devastation and ruin. Tomorrow might be the day when the Lord turns the world upside down one last time. To be sure, as the Apostle Peter says, scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they'll say, where is the promise of His coming? Things go on as they always have. God's not coming. But as Peter says, they forget the fact that that this very same world, which in the days of Noah was destroyed by the flood, this very same world is being stored up for fire. Judgment is coming. No, we don't know when. But Jesus says it's coming soon. And so the Apostle Peter goes on in his letter to exhort his readers, to exhort us not to mistake God's present patience with God simply turning a blind eye to sin. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is being patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is really what the, what the prophet Jonah is, is pressing the Ninevites with here when he says, yet 40 days. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Judgment is coming. God has not turned a blind eye. But there's still time. There's still time to repent. And implied in the message is that if they repent, God may just turn away from his fierce anger towards them. See, congregation, even as the call to repent points to God's righteousness, the call to repent highlights the fact that God is holy and that, and that we are unholy. Even as the call to repent does that, however, that call is in itself merciful. That call is merciful even as it exposes God's holiness, even as it exposes our sin and our unholiness, that call is merciful. That call is merciful because it signals God's desire to delay his wrath, that call, as we'll see more fully in the New Testament, signals God's gracious willingness to 
to redirect his wrath and to place it upon the shoulders of another, namely the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't have to send a prophet to Nineveh at all. God would have been perfectly just, perfectly righteous to simply wipe out the city without a word of warning. God could have done that. But in his grace and mercy, God warns the city through his recommissioned prophet. And how does Nineveh respond? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And notice what verse 5 doesn't say. Verse 5 doesn't say that they believed Jonah. But verse 5 says that they believed God. Because in the preaching of Jonah, they heard God himself. This, you see, is what preaching really is, isn't it? That as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we thank God constantly for this, That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but the word of God, which is what it really is, which is at work in you believers. And the people of Nineveh believed God. This congregation is the is the power of the Word of God. The Word of God has the power to to bring a people who are dead in their sins and trespasses back to life. When you picture the great and mighty city of Nineveh, we recognize that that from the world's perspective, it was indeed a a great city. It was a mighty city. It It was on top of the world. But from God's perspective, the city of Nineveh was was like that valley of dry bones from Ezekiel's vision, dead, lifeless. Dead and lifeless because it wasn't seeking its life in God. But here we discover that the word of God has the power to bring that which is dead and lifeless back to life. And so as this word comes to Nineveh, the great and mighty city of Nineveh, the wicked city of Nineveh, as the word comes to Nineveh, we're reminded that that no one, no matter how deep into sin and misery he may be, is beyond the reach of God's saving power. No one is beyond the the scope of God's word to, to save a man, to save a woman. Because the word of God has the power to break through the hardest human heart. The word of God has the power to to reawaken the most desensitized conscience on earth. The word of God has the power, parents, to to turn your most stubborn child into your most obedient child. The word of God has the power to turn the proudest man on earth into the humblest man on earth. And that's what it did in the days of Jonah. Because in verse 6 we learn that the word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh. The word of God reached the king. And and boys and girls, what did this mighty king of Nineveh do? 
Just, just picture it in your minds. Here's the, the mighty king of Nineveh sitting on his lofty throne, wearing his, his royal garments. And what does the king do? He steps down from his throne. He, he takes off his royal garments and he puts on sackcloth. And he sits in ashes. Can you imagine it? This was the most powerful man on earth. The surrounding nations feared this man. He was the, the cruel king of a, of a cruel kingdom. And now here he is, covered in sackcloth and sitting in ashes. And the only thing that happened in between, the only, the only thing that happened between his being on the throne and him sitting in ashes was that he heard the word. That the word reached the ears of the king of Nineveh. And he humbled himself. By the powerful working of the spirit, the king took the gracious warning to heart. In verse 7, he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And notice how it's the very things that Nineveh was most known for that the king calls them to repent for. The Ninevites, the proud Ninevites are to are to turn from their pride by, by humbling themselves before God and by crying out to Him, which, which they signify by, by covering themselves in sackcloth and by crying out to Him. And the Ninevites, who are so well known for their barbaric brutality, for their cruelty, for their violence, the king says you're to turn away from the violence of your hands as they turn toward the Lord God, the God of Israel. And so their repentance is not only marked by a change in their disposition, but also in their behavior. And this is what the word of God did. The people of Nineveh responded to the message in heartfelt belief and they gave up their evil ways. The word of God ignited mighty prayer and produced repentance in a people who had never before expressed an ounce of interest in the God of Israel. The word of God came to them as they were. But it did not leave them as they were. And it's important that we take note of that because you see congregation, as one theologian puts it, it's not, it's not the case that God simply loves us just the way we are. To be sure, it's true, the gospel comes to us as we are. The gospel comes to us wherever we are. That's what it does this morning. The gospel comes to you. This call to repent comes to you Wherever you are, it comes to you as you are. But you cannot remain as you are. The gospel doesn't leave you where you are. But it changes you. It changes the believer from the inside out. It, it transforms the believer into a new creation and dwelt by the Spirit. And it turns the believer around in repentance 
that the believer begins to walk with God rather than run away from God. And that's what happened in Nineveh. The, the call to repent came to the great city, the mighty city of Nineveh. And the call to repent transformed the city. I notice how the king's decree is framed in such a way that it takes into account also the sovereignty and freedom of God to decide what their final outcome should be. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In other words, the king recognizes that repentance in and of itself won't save the city. Yes, repentance is required. But repentance in and of itself won't save the city. Repentance isn't isn't transactional. Repentance isn't Catholic penance. Repentance in and of itself can't save the city. Only God can save the city. And so the king of Nineveh appeals to God's goodness. The king of Nineveh appeals to God's grace and mercy. And how does God respond? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. In other words, the Lord had compassion on them, and he, and he spared them from the judgment that was to come. You see, congregation, at the end of the day, this city of Nineveh was overthrown. The city of Nineveh was turned upside down. Not, just not by the wrath of God, but, but by the grace of God. And that's the way it always is. There's no getting around it. As, as Peter puts in the second chapter of his first epistle, the word of the cross, the word concerning Christ comes to every one of us. It comes to us, says Peter, in the form of a stone. And when a man comes to that stone, he does one or two things. He either embraces that stone and builds his life upon that stone, or he stumbles over it. But either way, his life is never the same. When the man comes to that stone, which is the word of Christ, he either builds his life upon it unto everlasting life, or he stumbles over it unto eternal damnation. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. Behold, says God, I am, li- I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. When the word of God reached the ears of the king, the city repented of their sins and the Lord had mercy on them. And the message of Jonah 3 is that if you will do the same, if you will turn to God in repentance and faith, he'll have compassion upon you as well. As we heard in our assurance of pardon, what does God say? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked 
forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Why? In order that God might have compassion on him. Let him turn to our God for he will abundantly pardon. As the prophet Joel says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. This beloved is who our God is. This is what he's like. He's the God who does not delight in the death of the wicked. He's the God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send him into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, congregation, it's not the case that God simply turned a blind eye to Nineveh's sin on account of the fact that they repented. As Lord Saifor reminds us, God doesn't work that way. His justice has to be satisfied. And so we have to recognize that rather than simply forgetting about judgment, what did God do? God postponed it. He, he delayed the sentence of wrath until that fateful hour when when the Lord Jesus was nailed to the cross. And then God unleashed, then God poured out his wrath against Nineveh's sins and against my sins and against your sins. Placing it upon the shoulders of Christ. Which is why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so while today is still a day of grace, he comes to us in his word and he calls us to repent of our sins in order that he might have compassion on us. The call to repentance, we must understand, is not just for the world. It certainly is for the world. The world out there, they need to hear this message to repent, to believe. But this call to repent And believe is also directed at the church. It's directed at you. It's directed at me. That's the point that Jesus was making in Matthew chapter 12. If you turn over to Matthew 12, 38, you'll see that when Jesus spoke about the sign of Jonah, he was was speaking to Israel. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. As this call to repent was being proclaimed in Nineveh, as it was being recorded in the Old Testament Bible, Israel also was to take this call, to take this word to heart. To the people of Israel, to the members 
of the church, Jesus says, repent. That's how Jesus began his earthly ministry. Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The call to repent, to turn away from our sin, to turn toward the Lord God is directed to every one of us. Although the word of God certainly comes to us as we are, though it meets us where we are, in our sin, in our misery, it doesn't leave us where we are. We cannot remain as we are. Behold, says Jesus, I am coming soon. I'm coming soon. Bring my recompense with me. And so Jesus says, repent. May the riches of his kindness lead us to do that very thing, to repent. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that you are gracious and merciful. That you bid us this day, this hour, this moment to repent. To examine our lives, all the areas in our lives where we are living in disobedience to you. And to repent of them. To turn away from those things and to turn towards you. Father, we thank you that you summon us to repentance not with, not with a heavy stick to beat us, to scare us, but that you do so with the promise that you'll have mercy upon us. And so, Father, as we hear the call to repent, may we not be scared to come to you, but may we see that this call comes from a God whose arms are wide open, whose arms delight to embrace sinners as they humble themselves before you. Father, we pray that this message would be heard not only by us, but it would be heard also by the world, that others too might repent and come to know the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.